Uninvisible is a support podcast that deals squarely with medical issues that present unique advocacy issues for individuals. We do not provide medical advice. Please consult with your physician for any medical issue that you are facing. Information and comments that you send to us are governed by our terms of service and privacy policy, which are available on our website located at uninvisiblepod.com. The opinions expressed by guests are their own and are not necessarily the opinion of Uninvisible or the show sponsors. Any advertising that you may hear is accepted without regard to our editorial content. Welcome to Uninvisible. I'm your host, Lauren Friedman, and I'm here with my guests to bring you info, insights, and inspiration for coping with, diagnosing, and treating invisible illness. We're here oversharing, so you don't have to struggle with invisibility anymore. So you've heard of life coaching, but have you heard of health coaching? A little over a year ago, I had no idea that the field existed or how supportive I would find it to be in my own life. And while this podcast has created incredibly fulfilling work for me as a Spoonie, I wanted to do something more tangible to support this community in addition to the ongoing discussions I host on the show. So I spent all of last year training as an integrative nutrition health coach and taking adjunct courses in functional medicine approaches to autoimmune healing. I'm now able to take this work off the air and into your life, helping you work toward transformation from surviving to thriving. Using my in-depth knowledge of lifestyle, nutrition, stress management, personal advocacy, personal experience, and more, I'm now able to work as your guide on the side, giving you the added support you need as you navigate industrialized medicine in your own search for healing. I'm offering individual coaching with group courses soon to come. If you're interested in learning more about health coaching and how I can support you, head over to calendly.com slash uninvisible to book a free 30-minute intake session. I'm so excited to connect personally with more members of this community and help you control the things you can control while working in harmony with your medical team and individual needs. Again, that's calendly.com slash uninvisible. Sign up now for your free 30-minute intake sesh. I can't wait to learn more about you. A content warning that this episode includes brief mention of suicidal ideation for any listeners for whom this is a sensitive topic. All right, guys, thank you so much for joining us. I am here today with Daylene Santana. Daylene is also known as the bipolar senorita. She's an actress and mental health advocate living with bipolar disorder. She's going to talk to us all about it. Daylene, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, girl. Oh, it's such a pleasure. We were just uh, bonding over the fact that we're both New Yorkers. So yes. very, happy to, very, very happy to have another New Yorker on the show representing the, the best city in the world. <laughs> yeah. So I wanted to start from the very beginning of your story and find out when and how you first got your diagnosis and how you have taken control of your mental health since then. Yeah. So I am, I started showing signs and symptoms as early as like, even before sixth grade. Um, and I used to lie to my mom and say I was sick, like physically sick. I would say I have a fever and I couldn't go to school. Um, and I didn't know why, you know, I didn't have the vocabulary to understand what depression and anxiety was, but I just knew that I couldn't do it. Like I could not go to school. I couldn't, I couldn't learn anything and I couldn't be happy or be with my friends like I normally was. So, um, I would just like, I would get like a lamp, put it on my forehead and like, you know, feign sickness. And I would like rub my hands together, you know, put water on my face, my chest. And I would have to, I would do that. And I, I, I knew I was doing something technically wrong. Um, but I knew that whatever, what was worse was if, if I went to school, so those were like my early signs of depression and anxiety. Um, and it followed me throughout my middle school and high school career, even college. Um, and because I didn't have any idea what was wrong with me. Um, and when I, when it went away and I felt better, I would go to school and I performed super well. I was, um, I got grades, you know, super involved in all of my school activities and things. Um, it wasn't until I got to college and I was 19 years old and it was in 2011 where I started showing symptoms of mania. And again, because no one around me, even in my school, knew what was going on with me, it lasted for about two months. Um, and then I was hospitalized once I reached psychosis. 
And then I was uh, diagnosed with bipolar one disorder. So it took up to 19 years old. Yeah. To actually reach a, a diagnosis. I mean, this is a story we hear a lot, right? That it takes a long time to get this diagnosis, partially because many of us really don't have the vocabulary or the experience to speak to what we're going through at the time, right? So what was that like getting that experience, getting that, that diagnosis and, and going, having to go through psychosis and mania in order to get it? Oh man. Um, that was the most traumatic experience I have ever been through. And even my family to this day. Um, so there was so much shame and trauma and just like, just the shame piece was ever present in my life for so many years, Lauren. Like, for example, when I reached psychosis, was hospitalized and came back home finally at my parents' house. Um, I was in such a state of shock and trauma that I didn't speak for three days. Like I just felt completely mute. And I I was I just couldn't speak. And in those in those like last three days, um, I made a promise to myself that I would never write poetry again. And I would never um, talk about mental health or mental illness to anybody. Like this was my secret and nobody would ever know about it. Um, because it affected me so gravely. Um, because mania, you know, usually lasts about two to three weeks, probably two weeks, um, because it was such a gradual, um, it was such a gradual situation and nobody understood what was happening. Um, it lasted almost two months. So I was losing my mind for over two months to the point where it just got so extreme. And there's certain, even to this day, there's things that I don't remember doing or saying. So, you know, even today, hearing some of the things that I did, like if my friends will bring it up or something, you know, it's still traumatizing. So I'm like, freak, I did that, you know, like, you know, so I've definitely been in therapy and then have healed so much more after coming out of my bipolar closet, which is what I call it. Um, and I know that promise that I made to myself, you know, I, I, I really succeeded with it for like almost eight years. I never spoke about um, my mental illness, never spoke about the elephant in the room. And um, I didn't write poetry because I started writing poetry when I was manic. And so I thought that I just associated it with that really intense trauma. And I was like, and I I didn't think I was like talented or anything. I just thought it was the mania, you know? Um, And so that was really hard because it was hard to uh, separate the like, even though it wasn't Daylene who did that, you know, it was manic Daylene, but at the end of the day, it was still me. It was still Daylene who did those things. It wasn't me, but I still did it, you know? So that was a really hard piece to come mm. to just like realize that, you know, it's okay. Um, and that took me many years, many years. Many years of therapy and, and mental health support, I should hope, right? Yeah, yeah of course. And, you know, cause I kept quiet for so long afterwards um, yeah. Well, I mean, what made you decide? Cause I mean, you have really risen to prominence through your poetry, through your acting and performance. Um, and it's fascinating. Cause it's like, that's so much of who you are to the outside world. Now, How, when did that shift happen from the promise you made to keep silent to yeah. starting to speak out? Yeah. So, um, it was always like the elephant in the room. Like I still, Felt, I felt like there was a sign on my forehead that was like, I have bipolar one and I was manic and I have anxiety and depression. Like I just, it was, it followed me. The more you hide from something, in my experience, I've noticed the more you hide and, and, and try to shy away something, it really comes to haunt you. And that was my experience. It followed me everywhere. And um, yeah, I just, it was so hard to accept. So because I was, you know, hiding it under the rug, you know, um, it just manifested it and, and really just came out more and more. Um, and so probably like, yeah, it was in 2018. Um, I started to feel so depressed and I started to feel even suicidal and I felt really alone. Um, although mental health uh, and mental illness rather runs in my family, um, we, in my Latino family, I come from Cuban parents. We never spoke about anything. And it was very taboo until I had my mental, you know, my, my manic episode and was diagnosed with mental illness. 
Um, but still it wasn't talked as much. I would just only talk about it at therapy. So I never really felt safe. So I really did feel alone. Um, I felt like I was the only person in my, my age, someone that looks like me, anyone that like understood mania, understood bipolar. Um, and I just decided that if I write a poem and if I post it on social media, and if one person can relate to me, if there's someone in this world that can show me that I'm not alone, then I'm, then I'm worth living for. And, and you know, life is worth living. Um, and so I did that and it was the scariest thing I've ever done. You know, I wrote a poem called to do list and I posted it and it turns out that there was more than one person that could relate to me, of course. And, you know, I just had this like outpouring of love from people I knew, people I didn't know, and um just a bunch of dms and messages again from people saying like oh my gosh this happened to my cousin like this happened to me this happened to my husband thank you for sharing that and you know it was the scariest thing i've ever done but the most liberating thing i've ever done you know coming out of my bipolar closet um a few years ago because it freed me um and it gave me permission to really like accept what happened to me and just be myself um, yeah. Yeah. That's but so beautiful. Scary. Super scary. But I mean, what a transformation, right? To like sort of, it sounds like lots of peaks and valleys to get to a place where things are good now. It sounds like things are much more stable. And I mean, aside from going public and sharing and, and obviously finding community um, and and also, you know, working with a therapist, were you also looking at medications and things like what has that journey been like? Cause I know that's a big fail first thing for people who live with mental illness, right? Often you have to try one thing and see what happens. So how did that play into your journey as well? Yeah. The medication piece is like really interesting because it really is just, you're trying for me, at least I tried so many different medications at first and when you're in a place that, you know, right after an episode, you know, you just want to feel like yourself again. You just, you want to feel functional. And a lot of times it takes, takes months, even weeks to months to feel like yourself and feel like you're able to be stable and functional. Um, so the waiting was the worst part for me. You know, I would try a medicine I would have certain side effects like exhaustion or um, nausea and it'd be so disappointing because I wanted to get better you know even though I didn't I didn't feel good I didn't feel like myself I I always felt like it's such a failure because it's it was a long process you know to find the right medication and even finding the right um, doctors and therapists you know I always say it's like dating it really is it really is like dating. If you don't find someone that you vibe with, you know, and someone that you feel really comfortable with to share these very deep and dark places sometimes. Um, and even your high highs, you know, um, it takes sometimes like I, I had to re- really weed out the right medicines, the right professionals, and it took a significant amount of time. And I remember, um, well, actually I don't remember, I remember my parents telling you this. I don't remember this literally, but my parents telling me to find someone, you know, maybe Latino who understood the language and understood like our family dynamic took a long time to find, you know, the doctor to give me the right medicine. Um, so that took like months, but now, you know, I can happily say that I have a really great team, a really great doctor, a really great therapist, um, had a really great group therapist too, you know, that just people that you know are on your side and, are in the profession for all the right reasons and really care about their patients. Um, so that's, that's amazing, but it does, mm-hmm. it took me a long time because it took me a long time to find my voice and advocate for myself. Well, let's yeah. talk about that advocacy piece. There's a lot in there. I want to come back to <laughs> um, later in this conversation, but in terms of the advocacy piece, what did that look like for you? Was that also a transformation in learning how to self-advocate? And did you also have people in your corner? It sounds like your parents showed up for you, you know, who who really stepped up as advocates for you in these medical settings as well? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because um, 
my parents, as I said, didn't know how to help me or didn't know the symptoms. So what really was the best thing that happened for them and my family and my close ones was just educating themselves, you know, me bringing home articles and books and just sharing with them openly, which is another really scary thing, like something we never spoke about as a family, something that was super taboo growing up to me, you know, having the courage to, you know, find the courage to really talk about things that weren't talked about. Um, But I always had the message of, you know, if I know you guys want to help me, I know you love me and support me. This is how you can, you have to know what my signs and symptoms are um, and how to help me in these situations. And it was a learning process for me too. I was, I was certainly wasn't a beginner in like feeling the symptoms, but like learning the skills to help myself and asking for help. Huge, you know? Yeah. Um, so educating my friends and family was definitely the number one um, thing that helped us the most. Um, and then I think for medicine, like just learning, just asking a million questions, you know, and just being really, really patient, um, with the medication was huge too. And just having to be reminded that this isn't going to last forever and I will find the right, you know, medications and the right doctors, but you know, it's just learning that everything is temporary, just like joy is temporary, just, you know, this depression or episode or what the situation is, it's temporary. And, you know, having that replayed in my mind daily was huge too. Well, it's a bit of a reprogramming, isn't it really? Isn't yeah. It? Oh my. I mean, it's interesting. Something you mentioned earlier was about once you've been through a mania, wanting to feel like yourself again. And, you know, it made me think of how hard it is to feel yourself again when there's a system standing in your way right? Like when there's a medical system, this behemoth, right? Where you're going to have to go through different doctors and different medications, especially if you're seeking someone who's culturally sensitive, right? To your experience. What, did you feel that at any point, like as you were coming back to yourself, you know, did you feel like the system got in the way or that the system helped you? A little bit of both. Um, it can be really frustrating when you're in a crisis and you really just want to get better and your family's really fighting for you. Um, and you're trying to advocate for yourself and it, it's a very, I guess you get very stale responses or insensitive responses. Um, it, it's, it's hard because when you're when you're faced with professionals that aren't there for the right reasons or just there for the money or whatever the situation that doesn't make them the best doctor, the best fit for you or anybody, you know, it's really, really hard to keep fighting, to keep fighting for yourself, keep fighting. You know, my parents keep fighting for their daughter, my sister, keep fighting for her sister. You know, you feel like the system or the world even is like against you because all you want is a compassionate person who is able to, to help you. Um, and if they can't help you, if they're not the right fit, you know, try and find someone for you. And it, it was really hard in the beginning to find those compassionate people. Um, yeah. So that was really, really tough finding someone that could understand the language and understand our, you know, experience and family dynamic was definitely tough. It definitely felt like there weren't any, you know, at, at some point it felt, you know, we felt hopeless at a lot of times. Um, and, you know, in the beginning, like now I feel like, you know, if I have to get a new therapist, I know what kind of questions to ask. I know exactly how to advocate for myself, how to find it for the right fit. Um, and what things I can say, like, Hey, this, this is what helps me, you know, because I've had many years of experience, but I wish there was, I wish there was more information, you know, looking back on my, you know, for my family and myself of how to like advocate for yourself and how to ask the right questions to find the right person quicker, how to, what kind of vocabulary can we use and what, um, what things can we do? What questions can we ask to find the right person quicker? Because a lot of times people are in crisis situations and they don't have time to, Mm. you know, they don't have the months to wait or weeks, long weeks. Well, with that in mind, what 
are some questions that you could offer to listeners? Like what are mm-hmm. the kinds of questions that you ask a new therapist or any new practitioner when you're going into the office? What would you recommend to people tuning in? Totally. So I think of it as like an interview, like I'm interviewing them. Like I said, like, it's like dating. Yes. You need to find the right person that you connect with, that you trust. Um, but I interview, you know, my therapists or have, um, prior to seeing if we're a right fit. I ask them what their experiences is in general, what their experience is with someone who has my specific diagnosis. If I were to show signs and symptoms of something, how would they handle that situation? What are, what is their experience with someone with my diagnosis? Have they gone through a similar situation where someone had a crisis and how did they deal with that? Um, I would ask them, you know, um, what their availability is. Can I reach them out of office or, you know, what are your boundaries? What are certain things that you recommend for me to open up to in the beginning? You know, are there certain things that you would like from me um, that can help, help you help me, help me help you kind of situation. Um, And honestly, whatever you feel is super important to you, you know, one of the things that I realized that I can do in therapy is like try to act like I'm good when I'm not. And mm-hmm. you want you a know, therapist who calls you out on that, huh? Yes. Like how, you know, I, I, I asked like, listen, sometimes I can say, Hey, I'm good, you know, and, and, and not because I don't want to talk about it or I feel uncomfortable. Like what are some things that you have done with your past clients or you would do with me to help me, feel more comfortable being vulnerable with you and getting, getting that important thing out. How quickly are you able to like read, you know, body language or whatever, things like that. That's one thing that's specific to me, but it helped because that's something that I've done, you know, and I do. So I just encourage anyone who's listening, like whatever you feel um, is a good question and you want to know, like, please know that they're there to help. That's their job, you know? And and any, no question is like a silly question because it's specific to you and everyone is different. Hmm. I think that's mm-hmm. such good advice. What about, you know, on the day-to-day now, you've been living with this diagnosis for many years. You have really gotten it under control between various therapies, right? And I'm wondering sort of what a typical day is looking like for you. How are you balancing the demands of work and life, which can be really stressful as you manage potential symptoms. Yeah. So it's interesting because I do need to take a a break. I've learned in the beginning of my advocacy and performing and and going to schools and educating kids on mental health and and, um, performing my poetry and even doing self tapes and acting like I realized that like I need boundaries with myself to not talk about mental health and not talk about my mental illness because it can be triggering sometimes. Um, Not always, but I really have learned how to separate my work, my advocacy work with, you know, my other kind of work, poetry, acting, writing. um, And like, just me, like as a stepmom, me as a fiance, me dancing at home and and doing the things that really bring me fulfillment and joy that don't have to do with advocacy. Um, and learning those boundaries and honoring them and like self-care has been huge um, to continue on this work. Um, when signs and symptoms show up, like I wake up and I have anxiety or I just don't want to get out of bed. Um, I've learned that words of affirmation work for me super well. Um, meditation, deep breathing. And I have something on my phone that um, I, it's like this folder that has, messages and DMs that I've received from people, um, cards that I've received from kids from schools that like thank me and just saying, oh, you know, you left an impact on me. And on some days where I really struggle with getting out of bed or, you know, low self-esteem, I look at that folder and I, and I, it really does help. Like, I feel like, oh, wow, day, like, you know, you're, you're here for a reason and you need to get the hell out of bed. Like, that's what it is, yeah. you know? Or, and again, some days, it works. Some days it doesn't, you know, but I love that I have that there and it, it usually does help. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, it took a lot of trial and error to find out what works for me and what doesn't. And on some days, 
some things that worked for me last year won't work for me this year. So it's an ongoing thing. Um, but I do find that words of affirmation help me because I tend to, you know, since my manic episode, I tend, I really um, struggled with self-esteem and, um, and self-worth and words of affirmation are something that has helped me a lot. Yeah. I'm with you on that one too. I, I really get a lot of value out of those myself. Um, have you found yourself in a situation at any point along the road to diagnosis and treatment up to this stage um, in which you have had to validate the existence of your diagnosis to someone who didn't get it because they couldn't see it? Girl, like, <laughs> first of all, my fiance, we've been together eight years. Um, and the first like two years of a relationship was like super honeymoon phase. I was going to school. I was going to the neighborhood playhouse in the city. So it's really interesting because for those like two and a half years, I didn't show really any symptoms. And I was living my best life. You know, I was, I just, I had a wonderful experience. I was falling in love. And when I opened up about my diagnosis to him pretty early on, you know, his first year, he was in denial because and wow. I understand because we were in honeymoon phase. And also I wasn't showing any signs and symptoms. It wasn't until after I graduated that it, I went from such a high, you know, experiencing this, you know, everything at school to kind of plateauing, like school's over. I, every day, you know, early morning tonight, I'm not living, breathing the training that I'm doing and I'm out in the real world and I have to find, you know, my own opportunities. So I kind of hit a little bit of a depression after where he was like, Oh, you weren't lying. I'm like, yeah, mm. I'm not, you know? Um, and it was manageable little, like little things that would happen in those two years. Everything was pretty manageable and I was always so busy. So I didn't have time to be depressed or, or whatever. Um, and then, you know, I had to, I had to do that same kind of education with him that I did with my family in the beginning post-diagnosis. Like I really had to like read this book and then, you know, kind of read these articles. Let's watch these documentaries. I had so many documentaries under my belt at that point. <laughs> and really just schooling him on what, you know, this is. And um, to this day, like he, he knows the signs and symptoms as well. And he knows how to help me too. Um, but generally, like when people first meet me, and, you know, friends from high school, I remember I'm writing an article about how I was suicidal in high school. And so many people were like, what? Yeah. What do you mean? Like you were prom princess, you were prom queen, mm. you were best dancer, you were life of the party, you know, like in, you know, the superlatives or whatever, but like, they were like, you were involved in everything, talent show, musicals, um, plays, like I had no idea. Mm no idea. And even now when people first meet me, you know, I say, you know, what I deal with or what I do for a living. And they're some, most people actually are like pretty baffled. They're like, really? Mm. You're really? And I'm like, really? Yes. Yes. Really. What is that emotionally on the receiving end? Like having people sort of look at you and go, mm, really? You know, like it, does it make you feel like they don't believe you? Like, is it sort of an invalidating experience? And would it be easier if people were just like, oh, wow, thanks for sharing? Yeah. It, and you know what? Yes. Um, I understand my friends from high school, you know, that, um, that were shocked, of course, because people, a lot of times, I guess, in our society, we live in such a, you know, productive and grind culture that people think like, if you're doing well, if you're grinding, like you're not struggling. And that's not necessarily true. Just because I was an overachiever or, or did really well, that doesn't mean I can't struggle with mental health, you know, or even have a mental illness. But um, yeah, it, it's, it's weird. It's a weird experience because I do feel validated. And I also feel like, well, what did you want me to look like? <laughs> what yeah. should I look like? What should I wear? What should I sound like? Just because, you know, I'm, I don't know. I don't know what it is, but like, I, I don't know what they expect. You well, know, it and, sounds like they expect the diagnosis to define everything yeah. about your personality, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I was telling these kids that I was talking to last week, you know, I, I said to them, 
you know, if I was, if I was talking to you as a cancer survivor and I said to you, I am cancer, would you, would that make sense? And they're like, no, I'm like, so I, I, I have, but I'm not bipolar. I don't say I am bipolar, I just have bipolar. Mm-hmm. And it's something that I have. It's something that I deal with, but it's not all of me, you know? Um, and it's great to be able to say that to high schoolers. Um, and it's great to be able to say that to you now, but it took me a long time to, to not completely be overwhelmed with the diagnosis and be like, this is all of you. This is everything. Cause it's not At the end of the day. I'm so many other things. Um, and I can have this diagnosis and still live a dope, fulfilling life, just like anyone else. Um, so yeah, when they act, when they say like, oh my God, you do all this, like, that's really cool. Like, yeah, but I don't know what you want from me. <laughs> like, I don't know what you want me to look like or, or do like, you know, um, but I think it'll take time, you know, for people to like, not have that reaction. Or maybe they don't well, we're trying to change those narratives, aren't we? Like with every conversation we have, with every poem that you write, with every you know speech that you give, you're also trying to change those narratives and change people's perceptions and get them to understand that like you can look like me and also yeah. live with a mental illness. Totally. Totally. Yeah. 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 Okay, guys, I want to talk about coaching. I recently connected with an awesome executive and life coach, and her name is Jenna Chieko. A graduate of Dr. Martha Beck's program with a background in psychology and law, she's a former tech general counsel and chief of staff who also worked for the Obama administration. Jenna inspires clients to step into their best lives by helping them access their inner strengths, clear the cobwebs holding them back, and cultivate a dream big growth mindset. She is also a life Sherpa for navigating change. You know who I know who has big dreams and is navigating massive changes now more than ever with coronavirus? We Spoonies. Jenna works virtually, and she's offering 10% off to new clients who enroll and mention code INVISIBLE. Her rates are reasonable, and she's dedicated to help us rise to the top. Go to jennachieco.com, that's G-E-N-A-C-H-I-E-C-O.com for more. What about that same experience in medical settings? Like, have you ever experienced maybe any undue prejudice or perhaps privilege in the healthcare system because of the way you present, like, can, do you think that maybe your experience would have been different if you uh, had been male or, you know, if you had been white, you know, Mm -hmm. like how does your identity play into people's experience with your diagnosis? That's a really awesome question. I feel like there have been doctors that I've worked with in the past that because I can be more functional than most, that they kind of downplay the seriousness of what I go through internally. And that has been major, like just a major frustration because if I'm telling you that I'm struggling just because I'm not, um, just because I, you know, I'm, I'm, I have makeup on and I'm dressed. Um, that doesn't mean that I'm not struggling. You know, that doesn't mean that I can still work and I'm li- or that I'm living to my fullest and highest potential. And I, when I say I need help just because I may look okay. I'm not, I'm really not, you know, um, that has been a true struggle for me. I think that some doctors think like if, you know, or in my experience, not all of course, but if you're, if you're articulate, if you're able to do certain things or reach like a minimum of functionality that like, you don't need to higher dose in your medicine, mm-hmm. or you don't need a closer watch, you know, for a few days or weeks. Um, that really didn't sit well with me because I felt like they didn't trust me or they just, do you think that was like gender and race playing into it? Like, I do think that it was part of, you know, a a bit of, a bit of like, okay, my gender. um, I don't really know about race too much. Hmm. I don't feel so. I think that they just were like, well, she's doing a great job at being a stepmom and she's doing, you know, and, and she's being productive. So like maybe her racing thoughts aren't that bad or I don't know, but I was really struggling internally with, you know, um, racing thoughts and, and I guess, um, you know, unwanted thoughts, right. Intrusive thoughts. So I wish that they would, they would have taken me more seriously. Hmm. Um, and again, you know, I think that I've, I've heard a few times, well, like you seem like you're doing great. You know, you seem like you're articulating well, Okay, but that doesn't mean I, I, I yeah, I just always felt like 
It doesn't mean that this isn't happening just because yeah, it doesn't mean see it isn't it. happening. And it took me a long time to like put my foot down and advocate for myself because I always felt like it was like the doctor knew more than me, or I wasn't able to um, over not uh, yeah like override what they were saying or, or challenge what they were saying because they had the power mm. in a way. Yeah, um, absolutely. I mean, would you say that? Because we hear stories about this all the time, right? Like especially with women and mental health, we hear the word hysteric, right? Like <laughs> you're rolling your eyes. Yeah. Like, like, don't even get me started. I mean, would you say that these experiences certainly of gender inequity and, and also what we know to be true about racial inequity in the healthcare system, would you say that these are tantamount to a public health crisis of their own? Absolutely. Like I said to you in the beginning, it was so hard to find a Latino doctor that we, that felt like the right fit for us. It, we felt like ostracized almost like we felt like there has to be someone who can understand our culture and dynamic in a way that can really get to us and help us and educate us so we can help my daughter so we can help me you know so they can help me um it really just felt like finding a needle in a haystack and it felt like you know it left us hopeless a lot um there really needs to be advocacy for, you know, Latinos, um, I, I think. And also, so other people don't deal with that problem. Um, and certainly <laughs> being a woman and, and all my doctors, except for my therapists now were male. And there were certain things that I felt like I couldn't talk to them about. And I didn't feel comfortable because they were male. And hmm. why I didn't, I just felt like I shouldn't or couldn't bring it up because they wouldn't understand, you know, there was distance between your experiences. Right. And also, also just, you know, especially like, you know, coming from a Latino family, um, when women, you know, they, they can be labeled as dramatic or emotional, you know, for Mm -hmm. struggling with their mental health or just even speaking up, like, you know, you're being dramatic, you know, and, and, or crazy, like crazy is a word that really we don't works. like that word. We're not it, fans. Yeah, it triggers me. It really triggers me. Um, I think that finding people who are even, you know, just sensitive to other cultures and able to really, like I said, lead with compassion um, for people who are struggling, because I really, I know that we just want to get better. Like whether we have the tools or not, every nobody wants to feel you know, sick. No one wants to feel the way that I have felt, of course. Um, and it's hard to see past that, you know, and, um, helping, you know, people of different races and genders, of course, and being sensitive to their experience is huge because everyone wants to feel as though they can relate to a person or they're being listened and heard and and their story is legitimate and validated. When you feel that way, it, when you feel the opposite, you know, like I felt like, you know, not validated by my doctors. Um, even when I am communicating my needs, it worsens your symptoms. It can worsen your symptoms, of course. Um, and it can leave you feeling hopeless. So of course I feel like, of course, you know, there needs to be education and advocacy for all of that. Well, let's talk about your advocacy work then, because this is one of the many solutions out there, right? You know, that you're someone who's speaking up, especially for people who have similar experiences. Yeah. And you mentioned that, you know, a few years ago, you posted to-do list on social media. Was that the beginning of a turning point for you? And did that enable you to step into this role as an advocate, as an educator in the mental health space? Totally, girl. Like, I never thought that this that's where it would lead to I never in a million years would have thought that I literally made that promise to myself you know as I told you but it opened up this feeling of liberation that I never thought I would feel um I felt validated I felt listened to I felt not alone and I felt like there was a reason for me to live literally um so, you know, after that, I started writing more and I started to post more and I started to get more followers and, and find people that were like me um, from all over the world and different. And it was so cool because I went from feeling so alone to nobody understands to someone in India 
people mm. just everywhere. Like I get that. And people with so many different life experiences. So it was so cool to, to feel that and to know like these people are living a totally different life than you yet. You can relate to them. Like what the power of the internet, first of all, social media, and like just feeling connection from people that you may never have never met, you know, otherwise. Um, and then I started to realize that, you know, I start to get more DMS like direct messages than actual comments. And it was a lot of overwhelming messages of people saying like, I, I relate to you, but I don't want to comment because I don't want anyone to see. And I, you know, I don't know how to come out of my bipolar closet. How did you do, you know, things like that. And I started to realize like, wow, most of the people that are reaching out to me are emailing me or DMing me because they're afraid of the same thing I was. Mm. So I need to continue to do this. So these, so it's a ripple effect. And hopefully whether, you know, you don't have to be public or, or, or do what I do, certainly, but you can feel more comfortable in your own skin and with the people that you love and at work um, and, and have more fulfilling relationships and knowing that your diagnosis doesn't define you and you can live a fulfilling life no matter what, like you don't need to be public like I am, but you can live a good life despite everything. And you can advocate for yourself and not have any shame for living with what you live with. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, that was just my big goal. And just the one thing that really got me out of bed in the morning and also, um, just being asked, you know, different events, you know, women's empowerment events and started being, um, invited to perform my poetry. And then I started attending like open mics at the New Yorkian, uh, poets cafe. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I, that was the coolest thing ever. Um, just stepping out of my comfort zone, you know, that was certainly scary, but then I started going every week. Cause I'm like, this is amazing. You know? Mm. Um, so this is a famed venue in New York city. Yes. Yeah. It's the best. And, you know, just having, you know, this is a different vibe at the New York weekend in New York in general, when you go to an open mic, like there's so much love, there's so much insane talent. And people um, just feeling that love and that support from total strangers from, again, all over the world. And, and also just New Yorkers who you know don't bullshit you. You know, you know that they're real. And if they don't like something, they, you're not getting, you know, it's very <laughs> real. It's very raw. Um, and having that experience, you know, validated, like people come up to me after like, wow, you know, my brother has bipolar and like, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to tell him about your poem or send him the recording, you know, things like that. Like, that's so cool. Um, and yeah, just, it's so cool to, you know, wear my story as armor now and not as, you know, that sign on my forehead that was so many years ago and it was the most. Or maybe it's like, has it become more of a blanket than a coat of armor? (laughs) A nice warm blanket. um, that I'm comfortable with, you know? Yeah. Um, and what a, what a beautiful transformation just as your health transformed also the way that you are able to advocate for yourself and teach others to do the same. I mean, this, this spirit of giving back is such a big part of, you know, living with any kind of condition when you can get to the point where you're able to like lead others through the darkness. That's, that's what great purpose, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think it's beautiful. I was wondering if you could also offer some tips. I know we've already given a few tips to people about, you know, interviewing therapists and things, but Mm -hmm. in general, given your entirety of experience at this stage, if you could crystallize three pieces of advice for those who are tuning in, who may also be living with similar conditions or undergoing similar experiences in the medical system, what would you recommend to others who are navigating a life with mental illness? Totally. Um, I think one of the things I would have loved for someone to tell me, and especially my family in the beginning was be as transparent and advocate for yourself as much as possible. And the right people are out there. You just have to keep searching. Um, 
I, I know, like I said to you earlier, you know, sometimes with my, you know, their fists in the past, you know, I'll pretend I'm okay when I'm not, you know, and it didn't really serve me, you know, being transparent with your doctors and your family and people who are there to help you will only serve you because at least they're aware of what's going on. Maybe they don't know how to help you, but they'll find a way, you know, if you're open and transparent about it, um, you know, kind of shutting away and lot, I guess, I don't want to say lying to yourself, but sometimes when your mind is, you know, depressed or anxious, you really believe that you're alone. Like you could intellectually know you're not, but your mind believes you feel alone. Mm-hmm. Um, so being transparent with those people will only serve you. Mm-hmm. Um, and it takes an immense amount of strength and courage to open up when you're scared and when you're in a dark place like that. And it sounds like it also starts with being honest with yourself. Yeah, it really does. Um, so that's the first one I would say, definitely be transparent as much as you can and, and try to put that into practice as much as you can. Even when you're happy, you know, like for me, I've learned that my, my skills that I've learned in therapy, I put them into practice even when I'm feeling wonderful. Like, for example, let's use this example of being transparent. You know, I'm transparent when I feel great, when I feel joy, and also when I feel pain. So it doesn't feel foreign to me. You know, like mm. being vulnerable and being like, hey, this is an awesome, you know, whatever. Like I'm having the best dinner. I just want to let you know that like I'm feeling so good right now. I'm like, thank you. You know. So you've leaned into radical honesty. Yeah. Mm. Totally. I love that. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, number two, let's see. So being transparent, I said. <sighs> number two. I would say what's one thing that I would have loved someone to tell me. Um, yeah, your diagnosis not only doesn't define you, but it really, this is going to sound like cheesy and kind of cliche, but I've learned that it's made me who I am. And I'm, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm proud for the way it's molded me to be a fighter for myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, I don't think I could be wrong. Obviously I'll never know, but I don't think I would be as strong and as motivated and, and, and excited about life had I not felt the deep despair and the darkness, you know, I like, yes, I've experienced such dark times um, because of my illness but I also have experienced joy in a way that most people, not most people, but I feel like some people have never felt. And it's because I've embraced my illness. I've learned how to deal with it that now I know how to experience joy in like this, just such a profound way that had I not had my illness, I, I don't think I would have ever cultivated it for myself. Mm. Yeah. You no. Know? Um, and understanding that, that everything is temporary, um, even happiness, even fulfillment, even your joy, you know, everything life, life comes in cycles. And even for people that don't have mental illness, you know, it happens for all of us, joy, everything is temporary. So if you're able to accept that and accept that with your dark times, there will be light and you're able to, um, navigate all of that. I think accepting that was a huge thing for me, you know, cause I, I always thought like, I always thought like, Oh man, is this going to be this way forever? Like, am I always going to feel this way? And it's like, no dude, like everything comes in waves. And, and because of that, I felt joy, like I said, and happiness in a way that like, I don't, I don't think I would have ever felt. I think that's really beautiful. What, what excellent tips to be able to share with people. What about, I mean, speaking of joy, can you name three things that give you joy for us that you're unwilling to compromise on that, you know, these might be indulgences or comfort activities, but like, what are three things that you turn to when you want to light yourself up? Writing is the first one. Yeah. Writing is something that frees me and it's mine. No one can take it away from me. 
Um, no one can take my experiences and my words away from me. They're mine. I own them. And it's beautiful to be able to create with them. Writing is huge. I always say like, if I'm going through something, when I write it down, it's such a release. Like maybe the, you know, the situation or the feelings may not be done or not processed yet, but at least they're down on paper and I freed them from my body. Yeah. Um, so writing is huge. Um, okay. So you said three things. The second thing are my dogs. <laughs> they're so cute. And my dogs and my stepsons like just give me so much joy and mm. they're, they're so innocent and, you know, they really remind me how to be present because I have no other option. You don't think of the past or the future yeah. when you're, you know, with dogs and small kids because they are there with you and they're, they force you to just live in the moment, you know? And um, I've actually, I've thought for a long time that, that therapists should be prescribing dogs oh my God. or pets. If, if people can handle them and don't have allergies, it's like when you're depressed and there is an animal that like needs you to keep them alive or is thrilled that you're home or that you're awake. It's like, it doesn't get much better than that. It doesn't. And it's so true. Like they will always accept you and love you no matter what. And it's like, their love is so unconditional and like ridiculously overwhelming and true and real that it's, it's of course it is a huge boost uh, for you. Um, so they really bring me joy and they keep me, they keep me <laughs> on my toes and a huge reminder that like, you just have to take every second to like be grateful that they're there um, mm-hmm. and be present. Um, and then the third thing I would say that brings me joy is dancing, you know, by myself. Um, I, I love listening to Stevie wonder um, and just bopping around in my house and similar to writing, like no one can take that away from me. Um, and it's really just, I don't do it to look good or, you know, I, sometimes I post videos of me dancing on social media because I love to dance, but like in those moments, I'm just myself and I'm expressing the joy or whatever it is. Um, that is so unique to me. Um, and it's just fun to do it. I'm like, you know, I'll just be like, in a room in my, in my bedroom or whatever. And I love, I love being home alone and doing that because it's just like my time to just like freestyle yeah. and, and just be me without anybody judging me. I love and that. I, yeah. I recently rediscovered the joy of dancing on your own in the, in the house. Uh, and it is like, it's the best. Yeah. Cause it's it the most really judgment free zone. Yes. It's such an act of self love. And just like, for me, I just love on myself so much. And I just love on Stevie Windsor, but like, it's just great. I, I really feel, I feel like for me, those, even the three things that I mentioned, like anything that gives me freedom, like a sense of liberation and freedom is, is a lot of the things that I gravitate to that give me joy. Cause I feel like I'm just me and I have nothing to prove to anyone. Which is gorgeous. So, so Daylene, what is your ask for listeners today? What can they do to support you and the mental health community in your ongoing work? Oh, um, well, thank you for asking that. Um, I would say to follow me on social media and, you know, just, you know, support my poetry um, and really just have an open mind and an open heart um, because it's so real and raw. Um, and yeah, it's at Daylene Santana. Um, so definitely there as well, but my, I guess my biggest ask would be for anyone that's listening. One, if you are experiencing, um, any struggles with your mental health, um, to talk to anyone, um, if you feel like you don't have anyone right now that you feel like you can trust or will understand, um, one place that really helped me um, was a warm line. So warm lines are, um, a, it's a similar, it's a hotline. Um, but if you're not, you know, suicidal, you know, it's just a place where you can speak to a professional. And, and I found that they're so helpful. Like in the beginning, it was so scared, scary for me to call. Um, but it was really, um, a good thing I did for myself. Um, can you recommend any warm lines for people tuning in? Yes, I, I'm going to email them to you. 
Okay, great. And we'll list That's them on okay. the webpage in the show notes. Yes. Yes. I, I just want to make sure I get the numbers right and everything. Yeah, um, absolutely. I'm, I'm so happy to recommend that. Um, and they're really helpful. So helpful. The nicest people like, oh, I just had, I, I love it. Um, knowing that asking for help is a huge, it's so hard. And that's why it's the sign of strength, no matter what your, you know, what upbringing you have, whatever culture, you know, your family is from asking for help takes a huge amount of strength and a huge amount of bravery. Um, and then the second thing I would say is to just like celebrate yourself for whatever you do to take steps to, you know, better your mental health. You listen to this podcast, you listen to this episode, um, you know, you do anything that's good for your mental health, celebrate that. That's something that I always say because it took me a long time to do that. The little things like dancing in my house, you know, like that's an act of self-love and self-care and that's good for my mental health. So I celebrate it. I'll put it in my journal. I'll be like, good job, dude. You know? Um, and that's it. That's definitely a good tool to optimize your mental health. Celebrate small victories, you know? Mm, I love that. So what's next for you in your advocacy and in your health journey? Yes. Okay. So I've been touring schools across the country, um, speaking to middle schoolers and high schoolers, um, you know, performing my poetry and, and, you know, speaking to them about the importance of mental health, suicide prevention, signs and symptoms, how, you know, um, just introducing mental health, mental illness and therapy for them. And, oh my gosh, it's been so rewarding. They're so cool. And it's, it's really just me doing what I wish I had, um, when I was in middle school and high school. Um, so yeah, if anyone's listening, that is a part of schools, you know, definitely reach out to me or if you're a teacher, um, parent or a principal, you know, um, I'd love to come to your school. It's one of my favorite things to do. It doesn't feel like work at all. <laughs> um, so that's, you know, that's something that I'm doing, um, for next year too. Um, really excited about that. I love being in schools. I love being in schools with these kids because they're, they love the poetry. They really vibe with it. Um, that I found when I do the Q and A's at the end, there's a, you know, in the beginning when we start it, they don't want, you know, they're nervous to ask a question. Then just one, the teacher or the aide or one kid will ask a question. And then it's like an outpour of questions, you know, because it's still something that they're nervous about and they're, because we're not talking about it as much, but, um, once you, you know, when I, when I'm vulnerable with them, it gives them the opportunity to ask questions and and be vulnerable themselves. So it's a really fulfilling and rewarding job. Um, and it's really lovely to see. Is there anything else you'd like to add before we, uh, say toodaloo? toodaloo? (laughs) Um, No, I don't know. Um, yeah, just celebrate the small stuff. And knowing, know that asking for help, like I said, is a total sign of strength and just advocate for yourself because you're worth it. You know, I would have never, I would have never believed those words from a person that I don't even know, you know, in 2011. But um, now that I have this experience and I'm able to speak about it freely, I can honestly say that, you know, I am worth it. And I am, you know, I'm, I'm worth feeling fulfillment and living in my joy and sharing, you know, my talents with the world. It's, um, it, you know, the highs and lows are there, but also the extreme of like being like, I'm a living example that like the extreme of, you know, experiencing psychosis to like fulfillment and being okay with your life is possible. And if I can do it, why wouldn't you, you know? Yeah. So beautifully said and so empowering for those who are tuning in, um, Daleen, thank you so much for sharing your story, for joining us on the show, for sharing that empowerment um, with people who are tuning into this episode. We're so glad to have had you. Um, and everyone do follow along at Daleen Santana on um, Instagram mm-hmm. uh, and across social media channels. We'll link to everything on the webpage for the episode with the show notes. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you for having me. It was my pleasure. And it was so nice to meet you. You're so easy to speak to. Oh, you too. Well, thank you. (laughs) That's it, folks. Thanks for listening. As always, please check us out online at uninvisiblepod.com and all over the social media world at 
at uninvisiblepod. We love your feedback and suggestions, so please drop us a line via the website if you have questions, ideas for topics to cover in future episodes, or just want to say hello. We're all about relationships and collaboration here, so credit where credit is due. Music for this episode is by Sean Hart, who can be found at seanhart.com. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. 